Welcome to Talk Design, the show where creatives have conversations. I'm Adrian Ramsey and I'm your host. Having lived a life of design myself, I wanted to share with you the creatives that inspire me and in turn may inspire you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Adrian Ramsey, and I'm your host on Talk Design. I started this podcast because I wanted to share the journey of design that I've had and that many others have had, and I find it inspirational talking to people globally about what makes design tick and what makes design create a better world for others. My journey has taken me from clothing globally, women's swimwear, performance sportswear, mountaineering, yachting, all these kind of genres where each place I would learn more and more about different specifics and how clothing can support those. Also, I've worked in innovation as a systematic innovation trainer and worked with the aerospace industry as well as the marketing industry and the design industry. And all my years of design Still my favorite is the built structure and interiors. In years of travel and discovery, I constantly look at what the emotions are that are created by the built space. I consider myself a student of design for my whole life and will go on that way. Some of the things that I do to support this is my podcast, and then workshops and masterclasses where I teach people about trends and design thinking and tours where I take people on tour with me and we go and discover different points of architecture or interior design globally. I always think that when you're passionate about something, one of the things that you should do is is you should share it. And so creating the podcast was my way of sharing my enthusiasm and the enthusiasm of others and their passions around design with you. I hope you really enjoy it. And I ask you, would you please drop us a line? Tell us what you think. Tell us what got you excited. It's so inspiring when we get messages from our listeners that tell us about the things that shifted in their life because of who they listen to. And it gives me the inspiration to dig deeper and find more people that I can bring to your ears so that you live a better design life. My guests on Talk Design today are Marlon Blackwell and Artie Blackwell, and they're from Marlon Blackwell Architects. They're from Fayetteville, Arkansas. They don't really need too much introduction. Their work is conic and it spans across certainly the U.S. Marlon's a professor, hugely award-winning. If you want to do a bit more deep dive on them, go and have a little read and you'll be there for hours understanding you know, all the accolades and things that they've created. Also, the amazing buildings. Go and dig into what they've done with architecture because it's actually a really incredible journey. And we also have a cameo guest this morning, which is going to be uh, Michael Malone from Austin, Texas. And these guys are fabulous mates. I was uh, talking to Michael and I said, Michael, can you introduce me to some really cool architects that you have a huge respect for? And lo and behold, they're on the list. And so Michael's been very instrumental in making this happen. 
So thank you, Michael. I would love to kick off with a little bit of a understanding from both of you. Now you can you can sort of decide who goes first here. It's up to you guys. But what happened? You were kids. At some point you were kids and how did you even discover what architecture was or what it even meant? You know, you obviously lived in a house of some sort, but at what point did this thing start in your mindset that there was this discipline that you fell in love with and became highly successful with? Who's first? Ati. Ati, it's you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I honestly, I did not know what architects were. I do know that it's probably artistic and it had something to do with building. That's what I thought architecture was when I was uh, younger. And I had to make a decision when I was graduating high school in order to pursue a scholarship, which is at the time was quite prevalent for Malaysian, you know, high school students. But they have to decide on a field of study so that you could get the scholarship to to be funded to wherever your institution is. And I knew that I really like art, which is, you know, we all know what art is, anything that had to do with creativity and all that. But I know that to in order to get a scholarship, it can only be a professional degree. So it's either computer science or engineering or business degree or architecture and I was looking for something that is artistic that it will also be a professional like a profession at the end you know so I I kind of sit around I was like well I guess it's architecture I mean don't I have to draw as architects that's how I I chose that and and lo and behold I got the scholarship and the degree would be in architecture so they, they, they were like, we're going to give you this scholarship. You can go to the U.S. We'll help you apply. and But you can only study architecture. <laughs> and I was like, what? I guess it must be related because you're drawing. So I end up in at the University of Miami. And that's how I learned all about architecture when I was already in college. Before that, I was sort of had an abstract idea of what architecture is. And of course, I was from a small town in Malaysia. I know not even a single architect. Like, it, it, I think, in fact, that town I grew up, they were probably just one or two architects in that yep. town, but they only do public work. So if you need to do like a bridge or an office building that is funded by the government. So I didn't know anything about architecture, but I, when I spent my time there uh, as a five-year degree at the University of Miami in Florida, I actually really, really enjoyed it. And I thought that it was such the best degree I could have gotten. I got a chance to study abroad in the UK at AA. They had an exchange program of sort. I did that. And then after that, I also went uh, to study in Italy, in Venice. That's a, a Italian program there at the at the Arsenale at the time before they used it as a location for the Biennale. Uh-huh. So I had an, an incredible degree, so uh, it turned out good for me. <laughs> what, a, what a fortuitous thing if, you know, like you narrowed it down to being able to go, look, I need something that's a professional degree, otherwise somebody's that, that it's not going to get funded. And then going, you know, like, well, it's got the word art in it, so maybe it's going to work <laughs> out. And then 
so fortuitous to end up with something that you got into and you absolutely loved because you could have ended up going, do you know what, this isn't for me, but I'll get through it so that I get my education. (laughs) (laughs) And all the travel and peace like Italy and, you know, the UK and things like that, I'm sure that didn't harm the journey in any way. It would have just made it more and more exciting. I think architecture has so much history and it is so humanly centric that it's it makes it very special as a as a you know discipline as well, doesn't it? Like you're designing for people and for you know how people are going to experience a part of the world. Mm. Yes. And I also happened to have a really good friend when I was in college that was very unique, like his perspective on life and and how he sort of the things that he enjoyed and the trips that he would take with his family. And I was his good friend, so his family would take me along. And I get to see all these things that I never would have. Like, so the development of that design sensibilities that are like sort of, you know, I it's strange because I felt like I never, I mean, I live in America, but I never at the time as a as a student, right? But like, I never go to any suburban home. Like I would go to this like, unique home because a friend of mine happened to be like weird like so he's the thing his taste in in art and architecture so it's sort of like one of those things where you learn from absorbing things Mm -hmm. not only through your travel and through your learning and of course I'm from Malaysia so I would like travel in between uh during summer breaks different places and you know, the scholarship, one of the things about the scholarship is like once you get the scholarship, it doesn't matter what I end up studying. Like, so I, you know, most people have to choose between one study abroad. I mean, I'm going to go to all of them you know, because, <laughs> <laughs> because it's the same. I mean, they'll fund me. It doesn't matter, you know. So it was sort of like looking back, I thought that I had a lot of exposure to things that you would not probably have seen. Yeah. And not only like in Asia and places like that but traveling in Europe and also like people that you hang out with like a friend of mine like I said this good friend of mine his family were really into boats so like being in a boat like seeing that like how a boat can also be a home you know like they don't live in a boat but like it's basically yeah. a three I don't know what they call it. are they called boats but like yes so it was very interesting to kind of just experience it on so many levels. And also, like you said, like he'd go to these, take you to weird places, places that you'd be like, well, huh, how's this? And then also the difference between, you know, how people say live in their homes in Malaysia versus how they live in the US and then the different climate zones of the US where Malaysia is fairly tropical everywhere. But in the US, you can be freezing one minute and you can be, you know, the difference between say being in, where Michael just was in Jackson Hole and being in Florida are extreme and completely different climates and require different things and people have different even behaviors because of their lifestyle because of how the climate shapes that. And well, I find that fascinating. But I, I just love the fact that it was like, yeah, I just narrowed it down. It just became this this point. And then so it captured you enough that you decided that it was worth keeping doing. What about all the other things? So you're, you're a creative person. Why why didn't you just choose something, you know, along the way, spot something else that pulled you out sideways and you went down that path? 
or is that still could happen in your in your career? Well, I felt like I've always that interest in art has always been in my family. My father is very artistic. My mother, but I was almost like because I was a scholarship student where I'm not really paying for my education. Somebody else is paying. I technically have more than in. I mean, beyond what you need for fine arts minor. So it's almost a degree in fine arts. So like I learn everything when it comes to art, like in art history and understanding the different period of art, you know, not only architecture, but like Dada is, you know, like surrealism and modern mm -hmm. art and the art prior to, you know, where everything was approved by the salon structure, like those kind of stuff that I learned that I really appreciate and understanding that. And also, I think exposure to very unique things. So it's like being in Miami, like I said, this friend of mine who has a very weird appreciation for things of beauty that are not, that are very different. So, you know, like seeing things like actual Botero, like, the, yeah. you, you know, the sculpture and painting by Botero, which is a Colombian appreciation for Giacometti. Like when I was in, in London, for example, like being able to visit the Tate gallery back then you know like the national museum mm -hmm. the british museum mm -hmm. like those things had always been something that i completely absorbed so i have a deep appreciation not only in architecture but in art but all kind of art it could be fashion you know yeah. painting sculpture just just unique things and it is something that i continue to do that's why i even now today, you know, like I don't differentiate between architecture or interiors or furniture. And I find it very hard, like when I'm working with my staff and like after working them for a while and I would hear them say, well, you know, can you tell her that uh, I no longer want to work in the interior finishes because I want to focus on architecture. Like I never really see it as compartmentalized. I always see it as, as as a form of art, and I completely appreciate, you know, you know it's not strictly spatial, yeah. but spatial, materiality, just the beauty of things in general, which I find it very hard sometimes being in an office environment where, like, especially the young people, like, they feel so fearful of, like, being pigeonholed to mm -hmm. do interior stuff or finisher stuff rather than how lucky am I? Like I get to do all these things that are in the end an appreciation for architecture and, you know, and all the other things that comes with it. And and living with art, like beyond, you know, just the architecture, the architecture becomes a, you know, the vessel, I suppose that, but how it's a put together and, you know, what it, how it feels, but then the next layering of all that stuff comes down to everything, right down to personal expression and, like you say, mm -hmm. how fashion even or, you know, visual arts like, you know, photography, movies, things like this, all these amazing things that um, highlight different things. I've got a friend in the UK who studied architecture and he's dyslexic and he was saying to me, you know, we dis we studied a lot of our architecture through movies and especially black and white movies because you really started to look at the buildings and and break them down because of the shadow, because of that visual side of what it is. And he said, you know, sometimes the shadow would tell you complete lies, uh, but it would really spark your imagination. 
And uh, it wasn't about necessarily seeing what you perfectly saw. It was about what you maybe imagined you saw a lot as well. And I think that that, yeah, I'm a bit sort of in line with you where there is so much to be gained from any piece of art. Years ago when I was, I worked in fashion, I used to often get something, you know, crazy, like I'd grab a mouse or something and I'd say, a, a computer mouse, that is, for people who wonder whether I just picked up a real mouse, and say, okay, well, I need, you know, a handbag, shoes, dress, three outfits, whatever, go away and draw that for me. Just because it's like, how do you interpret this thing? What does it become? What would it look like on a catwalk? You know, that that exploratory thing of how all this kind of falls together. Yeah, I think that what a fascinating journey. And so, you know, big shout out to your friend who actually dragged you to all these, or not even dragged you, but took you to all these amazing things. And you got to experience things that otherwise may have just passed you by, like they may never have touched you. Mm. Yes. <laughs> and Marlon, what happened for you? Like, did you wake up an mm. architect or were you born an architect? Somewhere in between, I think. <laughs> yeah. No, I, like I say, I, I was always artistically inclined. My father was a very good artist in drawing Mm-hmm. and such but I, I know originally i was i was really i grew up in a military family so we moved around a bit but i was i think came into sort of full consciousness of thinking about the future when i was really more in grade school in south florida living near the everglades so i spent a lot of time out in nature and you know loving nature and also fearing nature yeah. Not unlike yep. Australia. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say yeah. it by the Everglades. Yeah. Lots of things that can kill you. <laughs> but so, but I was really, you know, I would find in my outings in search of snakes and turtles and things of that nature for pets or for selling. Actually, I made a little money on the side. But I, I so would, you would uh, sell the pets. You were trading an. Animal? I would sell to to, to uh, pet stores and stuff. Yeah. Oh wow! Yeah, right. But you know, I would find skeletons and such, and I would, you know put holes in the bones and wire them together, trying to figure out what am I looking at? Is it a, a dog or a raccoon? You know, and yeah. so I was really interested in paleontology and dinosaurs. I thought, oh, that's what I'm going to be. Uh, and I would read everything about that. But then I was also drawing and I I started doing cartoon strips and cartooning and making up stories and different characters. And, you know, they could be sad or happy or, you know, just whole scenarios that involved you know, humor and such. And so that was really, I got interested in that. And then I thought, yeah, I'm going to be a, I'm going to be cartoonist and I, I love creative writing. And I thought, but cartooning is the way for me. And then I, I read an article probably as I was going into junior high school or high school about cartoonists, but it meant it had some kind of quip in the article about that the majority of cartoonists have some sort of alcohol or drug problem. And I thought, Oh, no, I don't, I don't want to, alcohol or drug problem. I, I don't have yeah. one of those. I can't do yeah, this. I don't, have, I don't even know what that is. So, but, and then I, so I thought I started looking at architecture, you know, like you know, it's art, you can build things, you know, wire things, glue things together. My drafting teacher had us design our dream house and then make a model of it. And so. Are you living slowly, in that yet? Yes. I think we have, we did, Ati and I built that design and built that design. House. Yeah. Built that original yeah. design. Yeah. Oh yeah. And so, yeah, I got, I got into that in high school and again, not knowing much and read a whole lot about it, but I thought, well, I'll be an architect. Of course, it comes with a whole host of problems there too, alcohol and I think everything is 
<laughs> some form. But uh, yeah, so I I really hadn't read much. I knew of, I heard, I'd heard of Frank Lloyd Wright. I sort of fantasized about it. I thought like, oh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll be designing buildings all over the world. I'll drive a Ferrari. I'll go visit my buildings. I'll be a jet setter, you know, not really knowing what architects actually do. It was just a, a kind of complete fantasy. I also, I didn't test particularly well. So even though I had pretty good grades in school. So when I got out of high school, or as I was getting out of high school, I had to, you know, decide where to want to go to college. And uh, I had an uncle who went to Auburn University and really it was the only school I considered being from Alabama and uh, hearing about Auburn all my, all my life, just about. So I wanted up going there, but because my grades were or not my grades, but my test scores were particularly high. Three days out of high school, I was in a summer option program there where you do one year of design and a, a math course in a summer in 10 weeks. So really intense. And then you have to score at a certain level to be able to go on into the program, which fortunately I did. But it was, and I just, I just loved it. I kind of thrived on it, you know, just the, the drawing and the creating aspect of it. I think when it got into the more scientific stuff, the, the structures and mechanical and all that, that was less of an interest to me at the time. I was more interested in the conceptual ideas and meaning and, you know, making connections in a kind of human way. But over time, I realized how important that aspect of it is to really realize something, right? So while I loved ideas, I also wanted to see the ideas built. So you had to commit yourself to all of that other stuff that helps make things that you dream of tangible. So it was... I love that was, piece. <laughs> yeah, it was more about rather than turning uh, dreams into reality, I was, how do I take reality and turn them into dreams? You know, So how do I confront that? the reality of making it to turn that into a dream. So just had to reverse my thinking a little bit. It, it's kind of like having that, you know, idea of something. And then, you know, I remember as a kid, my dad's a, a fine artist and we would always have tons of paper and cardboard and glue mm. and pens and all these things around our house and scalpels and, you know, and mm. you've got this idea, but then you've got to put it to, to turn it into into the reality of it. Yeah. Um, it's the journey that you get, you know, a thousand ideas from, you know, that first step into it. And you still end up with something like you planned, I guess. Mm-hmm. But the the journey of the discovery of the learning of putting it back to or putting it together. And I love the fact that you said, you know, get have your ideas built because mm-hmm. this whole field now where people are studying architecture to build you know, game space on the net. Mm -hmm. And so I had this struggle where I want to say, well, it's not really built, but it is really built. It's just built in zeros and ones in a digital format, Um, but they're not restrained by, you know, the the length of the backspan on a cantilever. They're not restrained by gravity and Mm -hmm. these things, which in the built physical world, we get restrained by so often different things and materiality and the weights mm-hmm. of things and how things scale and all these different things, but incredibly creative still to create environments that, especially for movies and games and things like that. Sure. Sure. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, I, architecture 
the realm of architecture is quite broad where you can, and there's plenty of room for everybody. And, and it's also can be quite deep as, as mm. well. And so it depends on where you want to take it. For me, I, I think learning how to take, you know, the more intangible and metaphysical and turn it into something physical and tangible as a means to kind of return you back to those initial motivations, those initial intangibles that motive, you know, it actually motivated you to begin with is that's, that's, I don't know. I think that's really important. And, and to share that because you're not, yeah. the other thing is you're not just making it yourself. And I, uh, I discovered that pretty quickly getting out of school and realizing that uh, most people aren't interested in our fantasies. You know, they're interested in how you make the world a bit more useful for them and, and, and consequently perhaps more beautiful too, mm-hmm. but kind of in that order. So, yeah. So I think these are realizations just sort of stumbling and bumbling along the way that, you know, what does this, what does this mean? And how I, how do I, how do I begin to realize some of these, these ideas that you might have or, and, and I needed a project. I, so I, I need a lot of external stimulation in order to jumpstart the imagination, so to speak. Because I could, you know, the great thing about cartooning is that you're you're transcribing your mental pictures, right? Uh, so I always <laughs> felt like I could. It's like a I movie make, in your head that you're, you're yeah. actually drawing. Yeah. Right, right. And you're making those initial gestures and expressive content for a project. And uh, it's really important that in, in my my mind, you don't deviate too far from the expressive content of that, what it's doing. Uh, so we are almost we're always double checking it in the office. It's like, did you did you look at the original sketch? Did you did you draw the original sketch? So you understand the proportions and scale and all the embodied sort of knowledge or content associated with the project. So I'm always having coach the team up to 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 do that, not just a approximation or facsimile of it, right? But it really is, you know, draw and then and then we move on, right? It evol- it evolves, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Never doesn't it look exactly like an initial sketch, which is often quite ugly, but yeah. I was, so, was going to ask about that. So, you know, with an initial sketch, you know, sometimes, well, there sort of tends to be a, a thing of, can you get it down to, you know, five lines and that will express everything kind of approach yeah. to it versus, you know, like the, the pieces of detail, yeah, that capture yeah. you. And then, yeah. you know, someone like Michael, who is um, amazing at sketching and, and drawing and, and mm-hmm. you know, taking buildings and drawing them and stuff, that whole thing of what, how far do you go with an original sketch to, because yeah. you, you're passing it to a team and saying, you know, trying to get them to buy into your idea and giving the best explanations you can. Yeah, no, I, I, it's, it's true. I, I think the, you know, when, as a cartoonist, you're by your very nature, you're using a, an economy of lines, right, mm-hmm. to maximize the expressive content, yeah. right. So, in the same way, the best types of drawings that do that relative to architecture are more gestural drawings mm-hmm. rather than a faithful, absolute pictorial detailed drawing I, I those to me will get there but that's not where i want to start you know i want to start with something that's more emotive and more expressive of of what this particular 
structure yeah. could be, right? I, lo- yeah. I love that. I love that piece because, as you say, it there is a real economy of lines in cartooning. It yeah. is how can you put pretty much the, the loosest and least amount down to get the most impact from it? Yeah. And yeah. You've got to hold enough story that the, the the reader can come through the story with you, but in it there's enough that they're connecting with their own stories to fulfill the gaps that it leaves. Right, right. That's the so joy there's too of much, it. Yeah, there's too much detail. The, the, the loop becomes closed, right? Mm. And there's not a lot of interpretation available. And I think keeping it somewhat interpretive, not only for the folks you're working with and for, but also yeah. for yourself that yeah. you don't lock in too quickly yeah so that's this uh yeah this is sort of we're describing a little bit about our process and how we work in the office yeah so that your original cartooning actually shapes how do you work in the office it, it, it shapes the initially yeah yeah that that culture of it and people who have well i mean i don't know with the with the team that you have how do you how do you get them to be loose enough to understand that that piece of process because that's a it's a fascinating journey into design when you do that is there some uh, tricks well I, yeah i have i don't have any tricks like we keep drawing it one is it make it iterative you keep drawing you keep doing it no you didn't get it let's try this let's try it. you know so it's a kind of a lot of toggling back and forth to understand the intentions of of those marks right yeah and 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 so if they are if and if they are attentive to to that they they will they slowly begin to figure out that there's an actual framework here mm-hmm. and how to how to operate in it and how to contribute to it right because it has to evolve we we never want to just be happy with a mere diagram right so we're wanting to get beyond the diagram yeah right? and so things are made out of something things have to keep the water out and the wind out you know yeah <laughs> and control the light so as it as you develop it, it there's a vocabulary that emerges, a language, a, a syntax. Mm-hmm. And so it's a journey that we kind of go on from something that is sometimes not more than a, a smudge on the paper, right? That slowly becomes something quite sophisticated. Yeah, well, always something quite sophisticated when it gets built. Yeah. It, yeah. it always ends sure. up in that one place. I think with yeah. cartooning, the other thing, like, because my dad was an artist and as a kid, I used to like, you know, play around with cartooning as well, although I can't write, I'm dyslexic, so I don't write too much. But whether line weight is super important, you know, the Mm -hmm. weight of the line and and how it marks. Yeah, how it it creates movement and how it creates a story just in in the weight of a thick line running to a thin line and, you know, how it's finished and things. And I think that that's really when you, my mind is churning now going okay so when i look at pieces of your architecture as a firm i go so where is that line wait where's that play that and i as i say my mind's journey i'm going i'm writing myself little notes here going go and go and discover this within what you do and right. look for those cues oh fascinating yeah. so that yeah so the surface of the paper or where you're drawing when it becomes a push and pull exercise yeah and if you push that might suggest a type of material that maybe is heavy, right? And you pull, maybe it's something that's light. And so you're already building into it a certain sort of material logics that are that are important, right? Yeah. 
So when you induct a new person into the firm, how do you get that they that they get? How do you how do you know that they're going to be able to assimilate that kind of culture and thinking, or do they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they, I think they just have to be in the environment. It takes six months to a year. Yeah, being in the culture and seeing how things work and how they evolve, and in being a part of that and dealing yeah. with the uncertainty and difficulty of it at times, you know, is is important. And I, I think too, we we have a something that we've written down, which is a meta project. So it's 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 a kind of set of principles and ethos that no matter what project we're working on, it in some way contributes to the meta project. So understanding what that is, it's really important. For example, uh, we're very interested, and this comes from the cartooning too. Is a lot of the buildings are conceived in section and in profile. Uh, mm-hmm. So buildings as a type of visage. Uh, and so the kind of fugitive nature of the silhouette, right? Uh, especially in buildings that sit in relation to the horizon. So mm-hmm. we're working in a place where there's more space than form, right? So everything is conceived in the round because we're we're not in a dense urban condition, right? Yeah. Where there's more form yeah. than space. So that way in which things are, or, you know, the conceptualization of things, that's something that people have to learn too. That So it's, and that's where the idea of the singular comes from, right? So you're designing the body in the mm-hmm. sense, much like if you were designing a car yeah. or designing, you know, a new type of animal or something, you know, there's a kind of singularity about it. Um, I get you. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, I, I think often... You know, often we go to places and we see different pieces of architecture, This uh, the singular piece, where there's this kind of one vision, and especially in, you know, in a, in a built-up area, there's one vision and then there's a different vision next door to it and there's another vision next door to it. And there's, a, there's sort of a permanence but impermanence in all structure, you know, like will it be mm-hmm. there and however long will it be there for? And... I've never worked in this way, so I'm going to ask the question because it fascinates me now that I'm thinking of it. So say you're designing a building for in a city and um, it's got, you know, a building beside it on each side and you've got a height and you've got a width and, you know, a depth mm-hmm. and stuff. So you've, you've got these very constrained results, but you've got a visual facade that is going to create the the story of this building. Mm-hmm. How much do you consider the building on either side of it or across the road from it to influence its story? Or, sure. you know, what, because you don't know Quite how long the ones beside it will stand either. And, right. Yeah. But it's still a cityscape. Sure, sure. No, I, I think they're regulating lines, you know, that you can riff off of because, you, you know, if the building does go away, what comes after it? Mm. And what do they riff off of? So there's a memory or a trace of what came before, perhaps in your building or in your, your facade. The facades too, how it meets the ground, how yeah. it meets the sky. Uh, again, when you think of visage, it isn't just the profile, it's also what's in the surface. So the vertical surface becomes very important. Mm. Uh, mm. And so material, we designed an architecture school that was an addition to an existing Beaux-Arts building. So 
rather than get caught up, uh, let's say, in the literal language or style of that building. We looked at it more through the ideas of proportion, scale, regulating lines, and materials. So it was out of limestone block. We used new technologies like limestone rain screen panels, Mm -hmm. you know, but finding ways to create resonance between the buildings rather than either trying to draw a, a strict contrast or trying to merely emulate or mm. mimic what's on either mm. side. So, yes, yeah, something that creates a little bit more tension. Yeah, it's a, it goes back to that cartoon thing as well, doesn't it? It goes back to it's part of creating a bigger story and mm. just an, enough to hold it together so that the you know, the, visually and, and in the storyline, it, it makes sense, but far enough away that it gets really exciting and stands alone while they pull together. Michael, yeah. how do you go with stuff like that? Like, It's it's interesting, you know, about half our projects take place in more urban settings and about half of them in places that are not too different from where Marlin works. And that, that's, that when he articulated that a few minutes ago, that idea of silhouette or building in the round versus responding to context around you, I really piqued my interest because until this moment, I have, I've thought about it as two different things, but I never thought of it as a comparison to approach because you're right. You, you can do much more figurative, much more formal things when you're, released from sort of the contextual boundaries. It's not that the the natural site or the landscape aren't important, but they give you very different solutions, dramatically different solutions. Yeah. So yeah, that that's that's terrific. <laughs> well I say it took me on a journey, that's for sure. <laughs> hey, let's talk about a project I'd really love to. I've I've got so many notes already. I'd really love to talk about a project. And we did discuss earlier, you know, maybe lamplighter because you were all involved in this and I'll let you guys, if you want to talk about that one, would you be keen? Sure. Or uh, Michael, you want to kick, kick off on that? I mean, I, I know that in a, in a, in a way it kind of began with Michael. Yeah, where you go then, Michael, if you're the, if you're the, yeah, my, my the guy with the limited. ball right now. So my, let's my, run my with role it. was limited to advising the committee that selected the architect for that project. But I will I will say this. I I did think very strongly that there was only one firm for that project. And we had been through a search the previous year for a project that I was not able to steer towards Marlin and Ati's firm. I felt I felt some unfinished work there. So when the second one came, I was I was much less neutral and much more, <laughs> more assertive about how it should go. And the result is remarkable because the building is probably the nicest building in Dallas, which is saying something. And That's and it's nice. a spectacular addition to an educational community that really redefined that community. That community was known Lamplighter for exceptional architectural outcomes on their campus through their entire history. But that building took them in a really different direction that was not directly in the legacy of sort of one of the fathers of, of Texas modernism, O'Neill Ford. And, and it opened up the possibilities of what 
really thoughtful contemporary architecture could be in an educational setting. And, and I, uh, I have enormous pride in the outcome of that project. And that's, that's my only really contribution. <laughs> well, I, there's another one of Michael's lies. That's not true. <laughs> he, 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 we, we, we had some ups and downs and he was like our conciliary, you know, we could, uh, we, I'm not sure that's how you say it, but we would often go to Michael's like for advice and, you know, what to do in this situation, both, you know, relational advice, but also technical. I mean, if you remember Michael, the, where we ran into that water problem and that everybody was, the contractor was trying to convince the owner that it was a design problem. We were pretty sure it was an installation problem and we had hired forensic people to prove that. And then anyways, Michael has an incredible network in the Dallas area of amazing consultants and that anyways, he was able to turn us on to a, a weatherproofing consultant to ultimately prove that it was in fact an installation problem, but, and, and we're able to get it resolved, but I still use that person, by the way, Michael, to this day, it's like, a, uh, but I, I, you know, these are, these are the things that happen behind this, the, the, the scenes where you're really, you're not in your place. So you don't have that connection. And Michael was always there for us when we were, uh, felt like we were struggling you know, to, to get things resolved. And uh, yeah, no, so it, it anyway. takes such a community to really, especially when you do, you know, like a contemporary building and you, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say you, you're pushing the envelope, you're pushing the boundaries, oh, oh, you're playing liter- with we, things. Yeah. We were literally pushing the envelope. I mean, <laughs> yeah. We did something we had never done and we, you know, the occasion presented it that way to, to Michael's point, and I know Atia will here in a minute, but, you know, you have O'Neill Ford, who's, I guess, the, probably the most well-known regional modernist uh, in Texas, who had initially designed the campus. And then one of his prodigies, Frank Welch, who had also added to it. And so you're asked to come into this campus for the first time in 40 years and introduce a new innovation lab that would update their in, you know, a new facility for the way in which they were they taught, which is a project-based curriculum. They're really a type of maker school and and as well a teaching barn. So they also had a traditional teaching barn with animals and a host of other things. So, how, you know, everything was kind of reimagining the future for this, for this school, which is a, I think, kindergarten through fourth grade. And we we put something out there because everything had to be one story. So how do you make a 10,000 square foot one story building that has vitality that isn't just another, you know, Mesian box? And so nothing, not that there's anything wrong with no. boxes. We, we, we love those. But so, yeah, so we really riffed on the materials that we could find there, which was just a little bit of copper but a lot of copper actually, but, you know, coming up with a way to an operation called pitch and roll, which is really the way you guide airplanes, but we use it as a sectional device to scale each and every room to have its own configuration, but a continuous sort of folded section that it happens in the roof. So it really becomes about an architecture of the roof and then how we use porches and how we, the room, the building really becomes a conduit 
to this network of pathway journeys through the, the campus and expanding the campus. And so it became something that actually was a little bit outside of our wheelhouse, too. So we were pushing the envelope for us. We were pushing it for the school and everybody was, you know, was all in. And so mm-hmm. when there were, I think the good thing is just when, when there were some challenges in the construction aspect of things, we understood that the project was primary. Well, yes. Everybody stood the mission. And so there was a lot of patience on the client's part and the owner's part, on our part. And I say to the, some degree on the, the contractor's part, in spite of what they thought it was, everybody, no one allowed to get litigious. It was all about how do we work together to solve this problem? Yeah. And, uh, As you said, it was all in. Everybody was yeah. in. And and you know, one of the most, uh, I was just going to say one of the most memorable lines I heard from one a consultant for the contractors like, well, in order for us to really pull this off, this building would have had to been installed perfectly. And there was this long body said, yeah, well, that's the idea. When we draw the drawings that you actually make, you know what I mean? So uh, it was, it was funny. It's like, uh, <laughs> that's one for the wall, was, isn't it? That one. Yeah. yeah. Well, we had to do that perfectly. I said, yeah, well, that was sort of the intention, so, but you did. So anyways. <laughs> it's, it's an amazing structure. Like I, I, while we were talking, I just pulled it up on um, a screen beside me just to like see what you were, you know, to try and put, the form and shape into it of what you were saying. And I mean, I imagine this started as some sort of cartoon idea at some point and went from that to this simple sketch. And it is, it's a real journey of the roof is something else, but what that's holding below it and creating all those spaces. I love that description you said about, you know, the pitch and roll, the the scale of every room and and how they all interconnect and how it still creates things. With it with it being built, forget the building of it, but the with it being built, the people using it now, do, you know, what's the experience they're getting or what are you seeing from the outcome of the building? that and and the the campus you know like as you said as well like campus was sort of 1960s and suddenly you've got this very contemporary piece of architecture in there that is very human in what it's doing and creating environments yeah i think i think you should jump in on this yeah uh the existing campus is somewhat revolution revolutionary already like in mm-hmm. in terms of the design of the school itself because it didn't have a regular like central corridor like dark you know double loaded corridor that's dark and then uh the same uh size classroom with the same look or something like that it, it's kind of it was designed in a way to I think they call it parts where maybe three or four classrooms share a central kind of like meeting space somewhat. Um, and each of the classroom is somewhat unique the way um, because of the floor plan of the building, mm-hmm. but it had been added on over the years. So over several decades. So it started to lose its sense of, something you know originality as with the succession uh, succession addition so it wasn't as original because it was trying to mimic what was the original which was somewhat 
it was really cool from the 1960s, I believe. Is that correct, Michael? It uh, was... The original building. Yeah, so there was something already, like the, the kernel of the, you know, the uniqueness was already there. So we were kind of taking that idea and kind of translating in a way that's more contemporary. So I think that it resonated really well with them because they already had something like that. So they uh, they stepped from what they already had that had that kind of um, value and into something yes. that was more contemporary and modern than that. Yes. And also, like, over the years, you know, they have been fairly conservative in spending money for the facility. So they would just try to kind of fix it. They didn't really have a vision. Like, the original building by O'Neill Ford was really original and visionary and all of that. But during the intervening years, you know, several decades, it was sort of like being managed in a way by the facility people, mm-hmm. if I would say. So like they would just try to fix the bathroom. They would buy, they would buy whatever unit that you can from the big box store and kind of, you know, so there was, there was like, it began to be, to become this hodgepodge of maintenance and strap on bandaid situation. So I think with the new, in my mind, like with the new addition, which is completely separate freestanding building, it make them look back, oh, wow, we really need to overhaul, like, you know, just really do a whole whole renovation or at least upgrading, not really changing Mm -hmm. um, the existing building, but it is time to not just like hodgepodge it, this corner, that corner, just like go through it, spend the money and do it all at the same time. So now I feel like, and we were asked to help them with that, like, you know, just finish things, kind of upgrading bathroom, for example, make it accessible according to code as much as possible for like accessibility uh, mm-hmm. and things like that. The bathroom counts and adding uh, the right location for the right offices and things like that. That was, but this time they wanted to do it all at the same time. So, and I think it was, very helpful because then when you do it all at the same time you can make all the changes together and everyone would feel like okay you know I have a fairly new classroom rather than this this wing have a more contemporary renovation or at least new finishes and the other one has to live for a few more years until we have the funds to do that but I don't know if it was it could have been because the idea was to design that renovation of the old space together together with the new addition, but then they broke it into two parts. Somehow, like maybe because of budget reasons, so they asked us to do it. It was budget. Yeah, Yeah. budget reasons. Yeah, But But initially, it was not supposed to be in separate uh, phases. We We did all the working drawings up front, and then they broke it into phases. So we'd already pulled the permits, and they just extended the permits over time. Right. I think like with the Innovation Lab, which is a standalone building, Mm -hmm. as is the teaching barn, you know, they have their own language and, you know, material relationships. I think what makes it unique and yet similar is this idea of the open plan, even though it was done in a more kind of 60s, 70s way under O'Neill Ford and Frank Welch. When we got to it, we, it was less, it was really about control in some ways, the idea that you could, have a, a, a just a couple of staff and they could see four different classrooms, right? And they're all doing something different. There's teaching kitchens, there's uh, robotics, there's an environmental science, there's a, a project lab. And 
So you have this kind of connectivity between the spaces, both visually and physically. I think the other aspect of it is that we didn't want to make a glass box. We wanted to control the light, to control the openings. Why? So we could maximize the envelope on the inside where they could actually hang, uh, you know, drawings and projects and artwork and that sort of thing. And so when we did make a window or something, that window had a spatial dimension to it. Kids could crawl up into it. They, they, they really, it was an extension of the space itself because it was spatial, not just a cutout uh, yeah. in the, in the wall. And so the way, and everything is linked together through this folded roof, which is all plaid in oak planks. Yeah, it's uh, beautiful. And, yeah. And, and so I think, and then the porches as well, which acted as these sort of liminal zones between outside and inside. And so those became teaching spaces and transitional spaces as well. And so it just, it all kind of folded together. And then I, I have to play some tribute too to Boitale, our landscape architect, who I think created this beautiful landscape of wildflowers and meadows and kind of prairie grasses. And so there's there's a kind of life that goes on there with the bees and the birds and everything uh, and the sounds. So it's it's not just a lawn, right? Yeah. Know, uh, that you mow, but it's a living landscape. And that too contributes to this new attitude about the environment and the ecology of the campus, as well as this kind of new formal projection too. So it, 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 it all, it works really, really quite beautifully. And I, it was an Institute honor award, about uh, three, about three years ago, three, four years ago, which was, that was a big thing for the, the school too, because the highest award you can get the national award and, and, is like, oh, what we bought into is it has value to someone even beyond ourselves, right? In, a, in, a, in, in the realm of architecture, at least from their perspective. Which I think well, also encouraged them. Okay. What's that? Well, Michael has to leave in about two minutes. Do so you want to oh. give him? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, yeah, just the, I think it encouraged him to go to the second phase. Yeah, go ahead. No, well, I was just going to say, I've, I've got to drop because I've got, unfortunately, another call in about oh, six minutes here. So just anyway, too busy. this has been fascinating. As. <laughs> and and Adrian, just a reminder, we will see Marlon and Ati in Fayetteville and Bentonville this March. I'm very so excited. First weekend in March. So yeah. Uh, anyway, you'll, you'll, you'll have a chance to meet them in person if you haven't already. So. Yeah, no, I never have yet, but other than this, and I'm really looking forward to it. And, you know, like, big shout out to the Texas Society of Architects for the amazing conferences they put on and yeah. also the amazing places they take people. And, you know, like, it is, it's a, an absolute joy to be a part of going to the to the conferences. And I think that yeah, you right. guys do an incredible job, Michael, with putting them together and creating uh, as such community with it as well it's it's really fantastic can't wait to get on a plane to tell you the truth i'm ready to go there you go <laughs> well i will see all It'll of you later time. michael all right. thank you so much see you later thanks michael appreciate day. it Bye. Cheers, cheers man yeah that the building the lamplighter building and the the way it sits in its landscape and you know, again, while you were saying about that, I was going back through photos of it beside me here and just looking at that landscape. 
And you you made a comment there about the fact that, you know, the, I suppose, renewed part of how the landscape matters so much and how it really enhances the experience beyond the building and the building gets to enhance the experience of being in the landscape as well. And these, right. the, the way we are using space now and especially in a climate like Dallas, so we get, you know, incredible heat there and we get really mm-hmm. cold. And so it's got mm-hmm. these two extremes and then using the porches and all the, the covered areas outside as well. And this extension of classroom and the appreciation for what that landscape brings into it. I loved mm-hmm. also the fact that, you know, they they may have this community kind of sense where there may be three, four classrooms as or groups of um, people learning different things in, different, in the same space overall, but s- separated enough that it's 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 I want to say organic in nature mm-hmm. uh, and I was yeah. looking through the pictures of the building and going yeah okay I see what you're talking about one of the things that fascinates me about all architecture is there's a brief and somebody yeah. says to you you know well there's 500 kids and they're going to be here from this time to this time and there's going to be this age group and this age group and some of them are going to be disabled that'll be this percentage and then there'll be this percentage that aren't and then we're going to have the hyperactive ones and we're going to have the ones that you know aren't hyperactive and what are you going to do with them all what building are you going to put them in and it's yeah. it's an architectural job to go okay so this the facts and figures now, what are we going to do with that? And then somebody says, oh, and there's a budget. So, yeah, don't go beyond this amount of money because we haven't got any more. And, and, and we want something that, uh, to, you know, in this case, builds off the, the, the value of the original buildings in the school, et cetera, et cetera. We want this thing. And, and pretty amazing, really, if you think in the 1960s, it was visionary in the 1960s, and you get to add, you know, 60 years later, more vision to a visionary project with cues and bits and pieces that are happening already mm-hmm. and, and, and have to go into the other piece of the project that already exists and go, how do we, how do we get this back to where it should be as well? I really love the fact that they went okay they were all in as well they were like this is this is a piece for the future yeah no they 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 saw the success they wanted to build on it i think the second phase which you we have not had uh photographed yet but will this spring sets up you know the what ati was referring to you know the whole kind of reimagining and getting it really tweaking the inside to get it back to the original spirit as well as adding a new student administration services building, student services building, along with a, even a, a drama building addition uh, to this as well, because they teach theater and drama and such. And so these little interventions now uh, become part of the new identity for the school, right? And so this resonance yeah. we've talked about before is really evident. And I think when we get that fully documented, we'll start to see this holistically. And I failed to mention that Doing all of this motivated them to rethink their central play area, which, you know, the existing building and our new buildings reinforce. And so they went out and found probably the most prominent landscape architecture firm in the country, Michael Van Valkenburg, MBVA, 
who had designed the gathering place in Tulsa, which is a kind of very famous, well-known development in Tulsa landscape, and got him to do the playscape and totally redo this playscape. So that too has been reimagined as well. Again, I think motivated by, in in some ways, by the success and I think the vision for these new additions and modifications and, and it's like, well, let's let's take it one step further and reimagine this play area for these students of kindergarten to fourth grade that would spark their imagination even more. Um, and so that just got completed this past spring or fall, I should say. Yeah. And uh, it's really spectacular. So it's you're only looking at snippets, but I think some point we we will see it in in the round as as a whole. Mm-hmm. I, I think mm-hmm. it's something that really proposes an alternative model to what a school could be. Um, I think I think that's one of the most exciting pieces about it. A, you said it's a maker school, so that's really fantastic. And yeah. then, well, it, it speaks to me because I suppose that's what I was like as a kid. Everything was made modeling, doing things. Yeah. And the other piece is, is that, they're prepared to jump so forward in beauty, innovation, and pulling the whole thing and saying, we don't want to be what was the past. We want to be what will be the future. And we want you to pull us out there. Yeah, pull us out there, but don't lose the past. So in other words, their barn, they're still raising chickens. You know, the kids are raising chickens and then they have, the chickens produce eggs and then they develop a business pro forma Mm -hmm. for how to market those eggs. And, you know, it all could be, that's pretty cool. And they'll have, you know, a cow out there and a goat. And, you know, it's still, the traditions are, are still strong, but they are, they're, they're an organism. They're, they're evolving. You mentioned Mm. organic earlier. They're an organic system. And I, I think it's, it's important. My kids went to uh, a Montessori school here in the Sunshine Coast of Australia, and it was the first greenfield school built in this area in, I think, 15 years. Mm -hmm. And it was built with a school farm and low funding, very low funding. And they had a a chicken caravan. So they got an old caravan that somebody would have Mm -hmm. towed around and they turned mm-hmm. that into their chicken farm piece. But again, they would farm their crops. Their crops failed. They didn't have enough mm-hmm. to sell in their things. That was a, a real maker's school in that sense. Yeah. My daughter, my eldest daughter, was she ran for a couple of years the, the business side of the all the produce. And so you'd drive in to pick up your kids and there'd be produce stalls and you would be mm-hmm. buying your rocket or your you know corn or whatever it was that they were farming at that point. And it became a microeconomy within the school, which taught the kids how microeconomy works. And those exactly. kind of things are magical. They they had a, a really interesting piece of architecture in the, they built a, what they called a roundhouse. And in the um, Montessori philosophy, it, it looked, it's for the youngest ones and only looks mm-hmm. inwards. So it, it's got little windows to the outside, mm-hmm. very little but the building is all focused into a massive courtyard in the middle and hanging gardens and stuff that hang around it and things. And I remember at the time going, why would you design it like this? You know, we've got a farm. Why are we? And it was because of the development side of uh, age of the kids and getting them to, it's an inward looking time in their life. 
and this was how the architecture responded, which I found fascinating. And then they, you know, as they got older, it, it spread and they actually created very separate pieces of campus as well because we don't want to hold on to that piece of the learning. We want to transition to a new piece of learning. Mm, fascinating. Yeah. And that's and that's a collaboration. I think, Tia, you might want to talk about the process a little bit if we have a little time, just uh, working with the administration and the staff, uh, Ati and our project manager, myself, and I think others would go in and have workshop and sessions with them so that they were, and we're getting buy-in, but yeah, I don't know if you want to go into any detail on that. Artie. With your microphone on, Artie. <laughs> yeah, you, you, she's <laughs> muted. Sorry, yeah. sorry yeah. yes. Yeah, Morton was right. Like, I almost forgot that in the very beginning and because we had to design it in several different phases, we always have to meet with uh, the different stakeholders, like not only the design board, the advisory, like parent advisory board, in addition to the teachers and the staff, and then I guess the parent representing the students, you know, so we have different constituents that we will meet throughout so that to, to listen to their ideas, even right down to like what works and what doesn't work with the staff and, and the students. And uh, before we even get to do anything, because because the school is so unique, you know, it's not like, OK, here's a space that's rectangle to yeah. 100 square feet or whatever, you know, it's, it, it's designed in the building was designed to the way they intended to teach. So, for example, they had this heritage thing that they that's unique to the school, which is what they call it, the learning well or the teaching well. So they sit in a circle, but not not necessarily just a circle. It could be like a a rounded triangular well, or it could be oval or round. But every classroom has an uh, a sunken in space. That's where they all gather together with a teacher, and either they read a story or they learn something. You know, they learn their lesson, but like down on the ground in this well, in this teaching well or learning well. It was, it was very unique. And, you know, of course, because it's sunken to the ground, according to the current Texas accessibility or even the United States accessibility standard for school, that's not cool anymore. You've but got they, to get a ramp is, to get there and you've got to, yeah. Yeah, but it's grandfathered. So, you know, as long as you provide provision for kids that may have uh, any issue assessing the well, then they can have, you know, maybe they have an, another area right next to it that they can still go. But any new classroom that we had, they still wanted to bring that idea to the classroom, but we can't really do it sunken anymore. So we did a similar idea, but like through furniture, so like that you could assemble and create into this round shape with an opening that you, if you have kids on a wheelchair, for example, they can, we can remove a section and they can get through and get in the middle and be at the same height as everyone else. And also it doesn't become a hazard because of the hole mm -hmm. on the ground. Mm -hmm. So things like that. But pretty much everything that we have to do there, like even like lockers, for example, they're having problem with the lockers that they had over the years that, that was made up by maybe more of a facility people. Mm -hmm. And what are the re the things that they really need? Like how do they hang clothes? What are the things? Is it their jacket? Is it the backpack? Like we just had a long conversation before we come up with a solution I and love. so a lot of it was collaborative designed by 
everyone in the school. And designing for the now and how people are as well, like the the way society is requiring, not society, but the way it's required now and the way habits are now, you know, like we look at what has happened with houses and once, you know, a house could be just a, a, a rectangle in the, you know, living room and the kitchen and the dining room were all kind of one space crammed up and had some bedrooms down an end and one bathroom. And people now go, well, you know, that's like a trailer home. That would be, it, it's almost inconceivable that somebody would draw that and say, there's there's your house anymore. Based on now, you know, the, the different things that people ask for and require from a home. I, I joked with the COVID time that we didn't actually, most homes in Australia, and I'm certain the US would have been the same, weren't designed for families to be in all day long and be homeschooling their kids and using as an office and doing all those other functions. They're designed to come and go from. The cat gets to enjoy them all day long, but we transition in and out of them. And I think COVID really shifted our perspectives on what, how, how a house had to be. And then construction costs are shifting the perspectives on what, how big a house should be and what it should be, the value of it, of the space and how it's used. I, you know, it's a, it's an interesting journey as we look at this. And when you go into the school, that piece, you know, like, yeah, how do you build a well, as you say, and it's got to have all its accessibility and stuff and inclusiveness. But then being able to, when you were saying before about this piece of it's all one piece of art as such, being able to bring that up out of the ground and put it into the way the sofas and things are designed and so that it's modular and it can be moved and it can do all these respond. I don't know where the line between architecture and interior is there, but it's both one thing because it's how it makes that building respond and the community that's in it respond. I think it's, yeah, it's fabulous. Really, really fabulous. Yeah, I think that's a, you know, talking about spaces and COVID and, you know, how it transforms spaces, not only in our homes, but like workplace or even school. Mm-hmm. We do a lot of uh, unique schools uh, lately, I would say in the last eight years or so. Like we kind of got into this market of kind of, what do you call it, charter school or, or kind of private school per se. Yep. It's harder for you to be designing something like this for public school because, mm-hmm. you know, the they always are very concerned about the cheapest. You know, like they think that if you do a building that may have different different shape, like Morlin talks about the inflection of the roof or even the walls, how it creates a little bit of variety in each of the classrooms. So everyone has a, their own unique identity somewhat, mm-hmm. even though the square, the square foot might be more or less the same or, you know, maybe the orientation of the glass slightly differs or angle or whatever, you know, I think, what I find about these sort of like spaces that we design, I mean, it maybe on the front end costs a little bit more and sometimes it doesn't even cost anymore. No. It's the same, but it's just, it's just the quality of the space, particularly like we work a lot with light. And I think the light and how light infuses space, it really changes how the space. Goes. So a lot of time, you know, you, you mentioned about like houses being, rectangular a house is rectangular right now it's really a pretty much a shape of a trailer home but the level like where we place windows for example you know is there going to be skylight or clear story is there like one windows that had a little bit more light than the others it changes the perception of the space and i think that's what people 
don't realize because when they they think about like oh you know it's it, it look different or maybe the budget will be a little bit more or they think it's perceived complexity mm-hmm. therefore it's going to be cost more but what they didn't realize is that it feel good like it's not only that it feel different <laughs> but it feel good because we have studied how the light comes in you know how much light is going to come like in, is it in two directions so like when this light in a space it's always going to transform it to a way that is healthier for you, for your well-being. This mm-hmm. is something that, yeah, by just going through the baseline, you know, double-loaded corridor with the exact. So it's not, to me, it's the desert of like intellectual, not intellectual, I would say. Institution. Uh, institutional <laughs> feeling of the space, particularly in places like a school or even your home. How many times that we would tour a home? Like I read a lot about, you know, like New York Times, for example, had this section in their real estate about house hunting or like, yep. you know, uh, in yep. every weekend they have, you know, and it's always without fail, like the selection that they made. It could be a smaller space, but it's the quality of the light. Like they're looking for the apartment. I like that. It's big, whatever. But then I'm going for the smaller one because the light quality is so much better. Because otherwise, it would drive me crazy, like to not to have this darkened room, and that's something that I think it has not been talked about a lot, because they think like, oh, it's expensive. The architect is putting too much windows, but it changes how you feel in a space, and if that makes you feel better, it brings you a sense of health and wellness. To me, that's mm-hmm. ah. that is more value than the dollar amount that you spend in the front end. It's it's like the, you know, biophilic design piece where, you know, it raises cognitive ability mm-hmm. and, you know, it could be just ignored or, but when you have the light coming into a space and it does all the light plays that it does and it connects you better with your, with nature and everything else, as soon as that mood elevates, possibility starts to elevate it with hope and everything else as well. And I believe, like you say, if you just take that and just go mental wellness just on that side alone it makes all the difference and as you were saying about you know where the light comes from and how it's filtered into the space whether it's you know brought through a narrow piece or a wide piece or whatever it is the difference between in you know I'm going back to residential or that institutionalized thing all light comes from the sides and it all comes at this height and you know and it reflects off the ceiling that is at this height yes. and it's all very prescribed and then when it can fall in down the side of a wall but you don't even see where it arrives from or whether it comes from the shaft between two ceiling planes and you don't even see where that light's coming from but it 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 brings shadow and it brings depth and play your mind elevates and when mm-hmm. your mind elevates to that it it's beautiful and and then that looking through you know lamplighter there is these these pieces of light and yet it's not like you're seat, seated outside underneath yeah. you know just the sun and uh, obviously climate wise you don't want to be but there's every moment for the light to be filling the building and yeah. that joy of journey yeah. in there becomes yeah like you I look at it and I go oh, I can't wait to go and see it I want to go I want to see that garden as well I want to see the landscape you know the the play yeah. space yeah no it's I think it's great I, you know, it's interesting to hear your description which is not just the light but is the shadow 
is the darkness. It's the half light, mm-hmm. right? And it isn't just, like I say, yet another transparent box, you know, which can be easily numbingly instrumental and oversaturating the space with light. It's a careful, strategic. There's a restraint uh, in it as well, you know, like right. that's, so that's it's the very beauty. strategic and where, where and how the light comes in, you know, and that's for us, one of the things that we're looking at more and more is this idea of thickness, right? So rather than thin architecture, you know, highly transparent, structurally legible and thin, Mm-hmm. Like when you cut a section through it, it just looks like you're cutting a section through a paper box. Yeah. What I like to call the thin, fast, and explicit. We're trying to have the idea of a counter moment where the architecture is thick, slow, and implicit. And so it's not about structural expressionism as much as it is about mass and volume rather than line and plane as a way to light is diffuse, you know, and brought in, in a, in an almost spiritual way. So you could, you know, you introduce the sacred into the prosaic, right. And, and into the everyday. And, you know, that thickness has some real use, you know, for us, both in terms of performance, but also in terms of the, the emotive experience of, of, of 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 space. The weight of the, the weight of thickness um, I know certainly it, it it brings you towards security and longevity and surety. You know, it's like sitting by a big tree. We don't run up to every tree. If there's a big tree, we go, wow, let's look at that. We take it in more, you know, but we could have a thousand aspens that create a grove that is beautiful. Right. But if there's one big tree there, we will go, we'll gravitate to the big tree because there's something right. about the tenature of time and it's it the weight of it, the weight of it. And, you know, like, you know, you go and you sit under a big tree and there is something about it that it gives you by being in its space. Like, it, yeah. yeah, I think there's, there's a something lot. ambient about it, you mm, know, mm. and that is felt uh, yes. as much as it is understood. And I think that's what I, I kind of is missing for me in a lot of schools and uh, hospitals and things is this, it's this kind of tyranny of always being understood, a tyranny of legibility, which is fine when it's yeah. done really well, like someone like a Glenn Burkett, for example, or, you know, Peter Stutchbury or, or even mm-hmm. Sean Gossels. I would think of some of these mm-hmm. Australian friends. Yeah. But but a lot of times in the hands of lesser folk, it becomes somewhat numbingly instrumental in the way that it operates in these these types of programs. And you know, I think I think there it deserves the question: How might it be otherwise? And and how we how we deal with these? And so I I I think the 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 modulation of light and the modulation of surface and I think are, are are really critical to inspiring spaces and to spaces that are insistent on being felt. Yes. Not oh, just I being, love that. I love so, that. Yeah. So kind of moving away from the pictorial or the cinegraphic into something, you know, that's, it's, it's much more shallow and, 
felt in some ways when I say yeah yeah it's it's something that you embody in the space and you don't necessarily can't even explain it 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 gives to you I I I love love where we've gone with what we've talked about I have a last Mm. question okay and that is and and I'm going to see if I can make you combine this question between the two of you this should be fun (laughs) one last project and after that you're done there is no more projects. You cannot work on anything else. This is it. You've got one last project. What do you choose? And tell me about it. That's a mm. hard one. I haven't yeah. thought about that. Yeah. That's 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 it. So it's not necessarily the, the end of life. It's just the... Nope. Just the end of life as an architect and being able to as influence an architect. architecture. Well, you could influence architecture, but you can't do another project. Uh-huh. It's the final one. It's you finish on this one, but not end of life. Yeah, I no, mean, you because I I imagine for both of you, you imagine that if you look into your way into your future, you're still drawing uh-huh. something and still creating something. Because how do you ever stop? Yeah, but if you had, yeah. but if you only had one left that you could do, and then you had to stop, what would you choose? Would it be for ourselves, or would it be for anyone? Like a hundred percent, your choice doesn't matter. Yeah, okay, I think, for me, I, think I can answer matter. that. I would yeah, say for me, it would be a house. Yeah, for yeah. yourself. Probably for myself. Yeah. And tell me about it. Because I think a house is. It's a culmination of everything, you know, like you have to make the right decision with the budget that you have and what's important, what are the things that is just absolutely necessary. I'm not interested in a giant house, maybe a small house, mm-hmm. but like, what is it for you? You know, especially since you've done many houses before already, if it's the last one, I would still like to do a house because it's about living. It's about kind of like, what are the most essential um what is the right size you know what are the things that you enjoy and you're also considering the budget because i'm sure you know most people like to put as much as they can maybe there's no limitation to the budget to their own house but i think it's more interesting that is limitation to the size and the budget and how you could turn that into something that is just perfect for yourself i love Um, it i love it where would it be Probably in a space that also have some access to the outside privacy, certainly, you know, inside, outside. It doesn't have to be like in a big acreage, but it, it has to have access to the outside where it might be controlled. Like if it was in a suburban lot, like how do we create privacy but also being able to be outside? Um, mm. Yeah. I love it. That's so cool. <laughs> Yeah, well, let's, uh, what, what, well, would it, I don't know. what would it be if you're not doing Adi's house for her? What what is it <laughs> that you would choose? <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a that's a great question because well, it, you you guys I mean, obviously created... that house makes well, the house makes sense because you it, you have full control, right, for the yeah. most part. Yeah, and and so naturally, why wouldn't you do? Or joint project? control might be the or, better. Or word. joint control, or, or it could be a. It could be a, a Jack and Jill kind of thing on the hill, right? Where the two two separate uh, deals that are in dialogue with each other, which could I think would be really an interesting project in itself. Then on the other hand, I think about 
you know, and an incredible embassy project, you know, in, in, in a place where, again, you could imagine what that would be like, right, which is another type of house for diplomats and for members of the host country to come to and kind of have this wonderful exchange. You know, I could I could see that as being pretty fantastic. I think the attraction, though, of the the house, I, I was thinking more, if, if I went that direction, it'd be more of a studio, right? So it would still be a place where I could go to work and dream, right? You know, I, I find the imagination is stimulated more when you're being active and working on something, right? Or at something. And so not just sitting around waiting for to be inspired, so to speak. So I, I think something that, where would it be located? I could imagine at the edge in an ecotone between a forest and a field or a forest and, a, and an immense space. So something that is at once negotiating the intimacy of the landscape and the immensity of it. So it becomes this this threshold in a way in, in the land. Yeah. And, yeah. and that could be quite... Uh, a, a quite fantastic thing if you're no longer practicing. But, you know, that that's a really, really great, <laughs> I, really great question. I um, think it was Tom Kundig who said to me, well, I'd start a project I couldn't finish. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And, so, and that's, that's very clever of Tom, because maybe that's where my embassy thoughts were going, because uh, <laughs> they're so ongoing. I, I love uh, I love the studio part because just yeah. because you can't create another project for, you know, anybody yeah. else, it doesn't mean you can't go and play. And... No, no. Yeah. And you just keep speculating. I remember yeah. back in 2001 after 911, I, you know, we had obviously gotten to know Faye Jones, Ife Jones mm-hmm. here, and he was in his eighties and he had developed Parkinson's. And so he had to teach himself to, draw with the way he could hold a pencil, which was, you know, like gargoyles and flowers and things that were more organic. But over time, he taught himself how to draw straight lines again and make architecture. And so he came to our office one day to bring his monograph that we were going to send to to Glenn Merkin, uh, who he admired quite a bit and Glenn wanted to meet. And He came down and said, look, uh, I've taught myself to draw again. And I've made this scheme for the 911 memorial in New York. At that time, there was an open competition. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he had plans and sections and this beautiful scheme in his sketchbook. And I was like, well, because he was retired. He he hadn't practiced in, you know, over 10 years. I said, that's absolutely beautiful. And I walked him back up the this stairs and I said, listen, Faye, if he'd like, we could translate these drawings into renderings and even make model and we could submit this uh, on your behalf in this competition. And he looked at me almost offended. And he said, absolutely not. Don't you understand? This, this isn't for the competition. This is for me. Oh, you know, and so, you know, that. that's so that kind of open-endedness of being able to draw and think and mm. control mm. your hand and your mind in such a way that mm. you're always making and dreaming. Uh, that, that I think, would be a good place. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's hope that we all get to do that. Yeah. And um, just be found sitting at the desk somewhere slumped over. Yeah. Slumped <laughs> over. That, that most likely will be me. <laughs> Ati, I don't just know. hope You're that Ati finds you within the week or yeah. month. Ati will, Ati will be in the hammock. Uh, you know. Yeah. He... It, yeah. Enjoy yes, I definitely Absolutely yeah. love it. Guys, thank you so much okay. for your time. Really, Adrian, really precious. You. And I look forward to meeting you and hanging out with you in late February, in March. early March. Yep. Yeah. Uh, we, well, we I'm on my big it. adventure. So thanks. That's fantastic. Wonderful. Thank you, you guys. Have a wonderful day. Likewise. You too. Thank Enjoy you. It. You too. Bye-bye. Thank Bye-bye. you so much. Bye. Bye-bye.